Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Okay, George, welcome back. Yeah, we got some uh, good news recently about our book. Right. Our uh, forthcoming book on bias and what to do about it uh, is coming out uh, in November of 2019. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the topics that we've talked about here, we cover there in perhaps a little bit more depth uh, with more examples and remedies of how to address some of those issues. And of course, we have some things that we talk about here that aren't there. That's right. So um, look on Amazon and, of course, the Mental Models podcast website. Uh, the title is Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. And if you've enjoyed some of those episodes about things like the recency bias, memory, or aspects of the economic cycle and how they impact our thinking, uh, you'll enjoy this book since we, we get into more depth and specifics on a lot of the different biases that people express. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it actually out in the shelves. But what are we talking about today, Dan? Today, we're going to talk about uh, the framing effect. So it's interesting you mentioned shelving. Uh, one of the classic examples of this is if you're going to buy ground beef, if it's labeled as um, 90% lean, that sounds great. But if it's labeled as 10% fat, that sounds terrible. And so reflexively, we can uh, basically change our decision-making just based on how the same information can be framed differently. And that surprisingly has an impact on us. That reminds me of uh, the new product and new stock that's been very hot lately, Beyond Meat. Uh, this came out uh, as a very successful IPO. It's up 600% or something like that from its IPO price. It's synthetic meat. It, it tastes perhaps a little bit better than the old uh, traditional veggie burger. Yeah. Uh, but there are a lot of uh, people within the protein industry uh, that are very concerned about uh, you know, loss of demand as a result of people buying this uh, alternative to meat. And so a lot of state legislatures are forcing labeling to be placed on these Beyond Meat uh, products uh, as saying, you know, not, you know, they, they, where they can't say that it's actually sausage or, uh, you know, it's a burger or that it is a, uh, you know, something that might be confused as actual meat. Right. So you can't frame it as being something it's imitating. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so they're trying to influence that decision. You know, I, I've thought about this, this meat example. Erwin um, Levin is a, uh, social psychologist uh, from University of Iowa, and he mentioned the meat example. And I've seen in actual stores, typically it does say 90% lean, 10% fat, which is kind of redundant. But it sort of made me think maybe there's some legislation that prevents you from highlighting one over the other. Um, this is uh, a fascinating topic. One of my favorite examples of the framing effect was about 10 years ago. It was written up in the Washington Post by Gene Weingarten, who's a journalist. And what had happened is they had done kind of a social experiment in Washington, D.C. If you've ever been to L'Enfant Plaza at rush hour in the morning, it's a pretty chaotic uh, cement environment with pretty unusual acoustics. What they did is have a uh, concert violinist perform as kind of a 
you know, a panhandler performance, a busker, uh, just set up, you know, on the side of the, uh, the one of the walkways. And he was performing, you know, concert pieces that, you know, real fine classical music. They were really questioning, you know, what what's the state of the art, you know, what the thoughts on art in in the U.S. and uh, you know, measuring how much money he was collecting and comparing that to, you know, what would happen at a concert hall. And I, I think in in the course of about uh, thirty to forty five minutes, he got something like twenty six dollars in donations, which is a solid um, hall for for a, a musician performing in that kind of environment. The uh, the sort of fun twist on this is that that it was actually a uh, renowned violinist, Joshua Bell, who's a, was a child prodigy, has played Carnegie Hall many times. You know, a, a ticket for one of his performances is going to command over $100. Um, and so they made that point, just the, the massively high-value performance of the concert hall for Joshua Bell, who played a Stradivarius violin, by the way, that was valued at over a million dollars. Uh, the story was he actually took a taxi cab to L'Enfant Plaza from his hotel just a block away so that there was no chance of theft of this uh, rare and priceless violin. So same guy, same music, same violin, radically different pricing under the, uh, the L'Enfant Plaza chaotic rush hour setting versus the properly framed concert hall experience of a concert which would have happened just days earlier. And so, you know, you're just talking about thousands of dollars of difference in the value people are placing on this. And they, there was a lot of uh, discussion in the article about how tragic it is that Americans are so, you know, <laughs> blunted to the, the obvious beauty of this music. Um, but there's a lot of other factors in the context of L'Enfant Plaza that lead to that radically different value. Yeah, it's very interesting. You actually see this in commercial sense uh, quite often with respect to brands. Uh, so uh, if you think about um, uh, Chanel or some of these brands, they really they do not allow there to be any sort of discounting associated with those, with those brands because it can set a frame within people's minds that you could get this at a, in a value context right, in one where you're being able to get it more cheaply and it can actually undermine the notion of it being a premium product uh, for which one has to pay a higher price to be able to get that quality. Uh, So we'll often associate quality with price. You see this also, of course, in the stock market quite frequently. A great example I had recently, I was uh, doing an analysis of a company that we uh, invested in at SaberPoint called EasyPawn. Uh, and uh, we spoke with one of the largest shareholders of EasyPawn who had been involved with the stock for some time. And uh, the problem associated with EasyPawn is it has two different classes of shares. There's a voting class that's controlled by the Cohen family. And then there's a non-voting class that's available to the public. Uh, and I have joked before that this is, uh, you know, we, we don't really own anything here, right? Because we have no ability to vote. Voting and, you know, the stock market is somewhat ethereal to begin with, unless you accumulate enough of a position where you could actually be an activist uh, and influence the, the management. But here, that's not a possibility. Well, anyway, the stock is extremely cheap, uh, despite the fact that, you know, it has greater than a 10% free cash flow yield. You know, the interest rates on the 10-year right now are 1.5%. Uh, 
uh, those. It's actually growing. It's recession resistant. It's very strongly influenced by the price of gold, which has been rising pretty significantly. But the stock is near 52-week lows. Uh, they did have a difficult previous quarter. Uh, but anyway, talking with this large shareholder uh, about Easy Pawn, I expressed my concern about the ownership structure, uh, the fact that there had been some questionable transactions in the past associated with the Cohen family. And he said, basically, the stock is trading today at about $8 a share. Two years ago, the stock was trading around $14 a share. And all of these issues that I mentioned, they were there at the time. And he said that everybody that he's talking to now talks about the fact that there's this bad ownership structure uh, and that there's a questionable controlling shareholder. But there were none of these discussions when the stock was at $14 a share. But now that it's at $8 a share uh, and is arguably in a much better position, sales have grown, profits are higher. From a fundamental standpoint, gold is rising as opposed to declining where in the previous circumstance. But because the share price is lower, people look for a narrative to explain why uh, it's depressed. And that narrative actually exists when the stock was at a much higher price. It's a fascinating example because in the research community, we often think about the context of a situation impacting the price or the decision. In that case, the price actually sets the context to sort of in a reverse way yes. to find rationales for things. And but in both cases, a critical point is uh, that we make these very snap judgments. They're intuitive. They're not really uh, something that we we're taking a, a broad angle, you know, a wide angle lens look at. Um, we, we react to some obvious clue in the environment. It's like the decision to uh, donate to Joshua Bell and L'Enfant Plaza. You know, there, there's, you may just discount it because, you know, you, you sort of set a rule for yourself. I don't take my wallet out in public or, you know, that's, that's not someone who's, who's abiding by the artistic standards that I want to see, so I'm not going to support them. You know, these really simple sort of contextual sort of gut decisions seem to lead us in a lot of these cases. And so there's an individual difference that we've found. So in work from my lab, we've studied the framing effect, and some people are more susceptible to frames than others and are more led by them. What tends to happen there is this reflexive kind of decision is made to you know, either buy or sell or endorse something or disown it, just depending upon um, how it is framed and one of the examples we've used is uh, just personal attributes about yourself. So we, we would give people little statements about their honesty level, for example, or their wisdom level with a percentage of time. So something like, I am honest at least 75% of the time. Almost everyone will reflexively agree with this. And you can give them a, a counter frame, the same information, just framed differently. I am not honest at most 25% of the time. You just, the not honest just triggers a reflexive rejection. That can't possibly explain me. Right, so you can calculate a, a, a framing index of how likely people are to, to fall for this. And it's, it's not a gullibility thing. We might call it that in society, but it, it's a very uh, core part of our functioning. I mean, this is how we make decisions. We can't always analyze things. It's not that people aren't capable of analyzing, doing a rational analysis. It's just that it, sh it gets short-circuited by something that we grab onto in the environment quickly. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, another 
episode that arose uh, for us. There's a consultant that works with us from time to time. They'll bring ideas uh, that may be interesting for us to explore as a fund uh, to our attention. And uh, they had an idea for uh, a particular company that has a very high short interest. Uh, and I won't, I won't disclose the company's name because this, this is the consultant's bread and butter. Uh, but it had a very high short interest and there were likely to be some operational improvements in the company that would be reported over the next quarter or two. Uh, and the thought of the investment idea was is that would cause a very significant reversal for the shorts to drive the share price up and cause a short squeeze. Uh, because of these unanticipated improvements in uh, the operations of the company. The problem with the idea currently is the context in which it's being pitched. If the market was rising uh, or the market was uh, flat or you know somewhat uh, and I'm talking right now, the market's probably six or seven percent off of its highs. Uh, but the context right now is very shaded because there's a lot of intense discussion about uh, tariffs. There's a lot of concern in the market right now about uh, it, it, the the shrinkage of industrial production uh, in the U.S. That the decline in the growth rate of manufacturing. And largely that's associated with trade and also some issues in, in oil and gas. But the point being that in the context of a declining market or a, a market with a, a negative view, a more bearish view, these short squeeze ideas have a very hard time actually coming to, to fruition because shorts feel emboldened and they're less likely to cover even in light of a uh, more positive outcome on earnings. So uh, that idea in the context of the greater market, which is more negative, uh, would have a harder time coming to fruition. Now, maybe I'm wrong, and this would be something that we can revisit later and talk about some bias that I may have because I'm being influenced uh, by what I perceive to be uh, the frame of a negative market. Well, yeah, that's an interesting example. So uh, whatever the framing is, is reflective of your own perception as well. And I, I think you're doing the right thing there in, in considering the broader context, because if you, what consultants will often do or getting an idea from another person is they, it's, it's already packaged for you, right? And so the danger with getting ideas from other people is that you haven't gone through the process of really analyzing it and gleaning those details for yourself. So you run the risk that whatever details that they're not particularly highlighting or perhaps even even they haven't noticed, you also will fail to notice those. But you're actually at a greater risk when you've get, gotten the idea from someone else because um, they may have a bias that you're inheriting and you don't, there's no way to know about why they have that bias. And um, so it pays off to really think it through for yourself. Does this make sense fundamentally, especially when you're inheriting an idea from someone else? Yeah, there's a lot to think about when you inherit an idea from someone else. Uh, one thing that you've got to think about is though you may have an entry point that they've provided you with, when are you going to choose to exit? Now, in this case, this is a consultant that we have an ongoing relationship with, so I just get them on the phone uh, and they'll, they'll talk to me about the issue. With a lot of folks, you don't have that ability. Now, oddly, it can be an advantage 
if you're willing to lose a little bit of money. You know, the idea, if it works, then you would leave it on. But if it doesn't work, if it starts to go against you, then you should panic immediately, right? And blow out. And the person that pitches the idea, they face all sorts of different psychological biases. For one, they've gone and advocated the idea to others. And there's this natural tendency for us to be consistent. We don't want to go and say something that uh, is not consistent with something we've told someone else uh, because it undermines our credibility. And also, they've done a tremendous amount of work. So they have problems associated with endowment. Right? They've become very familiar with this idea. They've become very invested. They've probably engaged uh, in some confirmation bias associated with it. So when you get that idea from someone else, you're not necessarily burdened with all of those same issues. If it doesn't work, you just have very powerful risk controls and you take it off immediately once, once it's not going well for you. Now, you're less likely to stick with it uh, if that reverses, uh, but... Uh, if it is a good idea, there's a decent probability that the price will be consistent with uh, the narrative that's been provided with uh, to you, uh, in which case you can enjoy the upside and perhaps you have a more limited downside because you don't have all the biased luggage that comes along with it. Yeah, that's an interesting lead into uh, what's going on with with uh, the framing effect within the brain. So we've we've talked about status quo bias or the default effect that you're, you're sort of letting something uh, run its course. And that's actually just what framing looks like within brain imaging studies. So we had, uh, with that same study where we'd, we'd done the, uh, the honesty estimates, people could sometimes uh, essentially uh, endorse the frame and uh, in some ways be led by context. And what that looked like was middle areas of the frontal lobes uh, were active, and those are part of the default mode network, which we've talked about before. What the default mode network of the brain is, is anytime we think internally, it's kind of the status quo, there's nothing to really jolt us out of our uh, current state of mind, you see that characteristic activity. So it, in some ways, it's it's kind of a thoughtlessness that's just like, that. that's the status quo, that's my, my default uh, sort of uh, position. When people reverse the framing effect, when they realize they can properly endorse honesty and lack of honesty at those percentages. Uh, what would happen is their task mode um, lateral frontal lobe areas would become active. It's sort of kicking into gear, and that's the same type of activity you see when we do mental arithmetic or when we do any kind of deliberative thinking where we, we analyze something. So that analytical mode actually reflects in the brain. So when we overcome the framing effect, it's, it's marked by that sort of analytical shift within our brains. Yeah, definitely uh, see evidence of that all the time in the world of uh, investment. So the advice there is you've got to somehow notice the context in a novel way so that you can go into more of an analytic mode to make sure that you're not falling for uh, some assumptions that come along with the particular packaging or the framing of a situation. Another important uh, foundation for, for the framing effect research-wise was by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. It was called the Asian disease problem, which was uh, they would present people with this, you know, there's a, an unknown foreign disease coming along and it's likely to kill 
a certain number of people. And they would offer people the chance to play the role of a uh, sort of a healthcare policy person and decide one of two treatments that, or, um, you know, ways to fight the illness. And one of them involved uh, people basically dying. <laughs> and, you know, you could sort of select a certain number of sure deaths or take a gamble that everyone might die, you know, but, but you'd save some people. And in that case, people try to like, reflexively want to avoid the deaths. And so they'll tend to gamble. So they get riskier when things are framed negatively. And the other aspect of the experiments, they would have a live saved version, at which point people would go with the sure live saved, even if they were the same numbers that they presented in the, in the deaths example. So just by changing the number of people that will die for sure or be saved for sure, people tend to gamble to avoid the deaths and they tend to go conservative to save the lives. And so uh, even in important decisions like this, we can in some ways be led too much by the framing. And so that points out another really key problem when we're going through our lives, we, we may get too risky when faced with a loss. So going back to that idea of panic from uh, a position not working out and investing, you may start to inappropriately become risky under that context where, you know, if the market were up or, or some of these factors were somehow placed in the background because you're not, you know, in that panic mode, you could really perceive things differently and act differently. Yeah, it's really interesting uh, to think. There's there's two points that I'd like to make. One, whenever you're analyzing a particular idea and you see it as being analogous to a separate situation where the factors, uh, the idiosyncratic factors associated with that particular idea seem very similar, you have to think about the context in which that idea is framed, right? So is it, when you looked at it previously, was that in a rising market or a sideways market versus a down market? Or was it in a down market versus a rising market? And that's true longs and shorts. Also, you should think about the context of your own mind. So one thing that's really dangerous, and this this happens uh, and has happened to me and to analysts that work with me at, at SaberPoint, you'll have an idea uh, or a, an investment that doesn't work out. So you end up incurring a loss, uh, and that could be maybe we made a mistake, or maybe there was it was just unfortunate. But uh, if there is some question about it, then you may look at similar ideas. Perhaps they're in the same industry, or they have some similar factors associated with them, and you'll second guess those, right? When they could be completely unrelated to the idea that didn't work out. And then perhaps you'll make a second bad investment decision because you're being psychologically affected by the frame of suffering a loss associated with another investment decision. And it goes in the opposite. If you have one that's been extremely successful and you have something else that has similar characteristics, you may overweight and be more risk-seeking in the second investment because you see it as being analogous to the first. They're independent of each other. They really don't have a relationship with one another. But your frame of mind is different because of what's occurred uh, with you psychologically. Uh, you know, and you'll often see this with managers. Managers that have had a bad year so far tend to be very bearish, right? And those that have had a great year tend to be more bullish. 
can really, um, you know, kind of be swept along with our emotional state. And that can even play out over time. So that makes it extra challenging because you have sort of these very micro examples where just some potent emotional factors will frame a decision or an, an event on a, on a single basis. But it can also play out with exactly what you've said, where people start to become, uh, they, their mindset will shift toward a particular framing over time. Gosh, there's so much advice that we could give here. I think the, the main takeaway is you've got to really know when to think things through, just rather than make reflexive decisions, especially emotional decisions, that's when you're open to being uh, susceptible to framing effects. Uh, you know, step back, uh, try to think of multiple examples, try to think of counterexamples. If you're, if you're starting to see something as just like some other risky case, you know, try to think of another example that may apply and try to highlight some of those other aspects that aren't present in your current framing. Well, it's important to realize that there's two frames that matter. There's your frame and there's the frame of the market. So whenever you're analyzing a particular investment idea, it's important to think about the frame of the market when there are analogous situations that you're using as a reference point as to, you know, perhaps they were successful under certain market conditions or certain industry conditions and ask whether those larger conditions are still present or uh, whether they're different in some way. And then, of course, your own mental framework. Like, it, you know, you ask yourself, am I viewing this too negatively or too positively because of, of my recent performance or because of some situation that's somewhat analogous but not, you know, not perfectly analogous that's, that's affecting my personal view, my personal frame? Uh, or am I overlooking something because... I'm viewing it from a certain frame that's inappropriate. I guess the best thing you can say there is just to step back and think about, you know, the meta game, not just the the more narrow focused set of facts that you have before you, but the context in which they're playing out and the context in which, uh, you know, within your own mind and then within the mind of the market. Yeah, and, and talking to other people can be a really good remedy here as well, just because they won't share your particular biases, and uh, they may just have a, a tendency to, to fill in more details of the context that, that'll tend to break down your frame susceptibility. You know, one of the amazing examples with framing effects also is how much power the individual has to change um, their thoughts. So this is a big part of psychological therapies, reframing um, situations from another person's perspective, and that tends to break someone's subjective mindset. I'm reminded of a really great public speaking tip I got. Ian Robertson, a colleague of mine over in Ireland, likes to talk about this one. If you're, you know, everyone has some level of uh, crowd anxiety or sort of some anxiety before doing public speaking, for example. And if you sort of think of, instead of th saying, I'm really nervous right now, you just say, I'm really excited right now for this talk. It's going to go so great. You know, and it's suddenly just by, by that little tweak of your, your mental framing, you'll, you'll often feel a lot happier about the, uh, what's about to come. And so that's just an example of how simple little things can enable you to kind of empower you to change your mindset on, on a particular frame. Don't be led too much by the context. Try to, try to internally guide yourself as well. Yeah, there are much larger contexts than 
investing where these issues arise. One thing that comes to my mind is uh, during times of war, the propaganda that's used to dehumanize the enemy. Uh, you know, during World War II, you know, in World War One, the Germans were referred to as the Hun. You know, and there was this like this notion that they were barbarians and make it much easier for you to kill someone. Right. If you don't think of them as being human and you think about things that happen, like, for instance, with the Holocaust and the dehumanization of Jews within Nazi Germany, uh, it allowed people to separate them from themselves. Whereas uh, Adam Smith and a number of uh, philosophers in the past have often advocated the notion that sympathy is the root of moral behavior. If you think of someone else as being like yourself, you put it into that frame. It makes it much more likely that you will act morally towards them because you're sympathetic uh, to whatever their woes are. But a government that is in conflict with another government that notion is very destructive, so they try to change that frame into dehumanizing or separating those other people from, uh, from your people uh, so that it makes it easier for, for you to go and act aggressively towards them. Yeah, it's an it's amazing, powerful force in terms of uh, manipulating people, you know, and, and those are good examples of just how government can, can use framing. I often think of the advertising industry in this way, you know, that they're in effect trying to be manipulative to highlight their product. There feels like there's some kind of sinister element to that where they're, someone's deliberately trying to misinform you. Um, but th- this can even happen implicitly where you don't necessarily intend to deceive anyone. It's just that you agree with the idea or you're advocating for it. So naturally the things that jump to mind to highlight are those things that might cause someone else to think similarly. So um, this is one of those topics that uh, is ever-present in our lives at both a micro and macro level. There's a lot of subjectivity here. And uh, George, maybe let's just run through some, a little bit of summary and some good tips as we close out on this topic. Yeah, I think often you have to look at ideas and the context in which they're presented and then try to think of alternative contexts in which you may view them differently that can create both opportunity and perhaps reasons to avoid making a decision that otherwise seems appealing. Also, you know, communicating with other people, like you'd mentioned before, is an excellent way uh, to try to get a different vantage point uh, that doesn't carry the baggage or the preconceptions that you have when you come to an idea or to a circumstance. Um, and, and we can always have to know that how something is presented and how it's put forward before us, whether it's in a subway, right, uh, or it's in a concert hall, it can make a difference. Uh, you know, the packaging can always make a big difference. If I take a Coca-Cola and I stick it into a Sam's can and it's the exact same thing, it won't taste the same to me, right? It won't be a Coca-Cola. Uh, so, you know, the wrapper actually does make a difference because it affects our mental perception of the actual item itself. The frames really do matter. And uh, another important point is just the wording matters so much. So if you're finding yourself getting carried away, making rapid decisions on something, maybe see if you can word it a little differently. That Because words highlight certain features and associations. So don't go with the default. Don't let your default mode network get uh, carried away. Do some analytical work on things as you make your decisions. Um, And next time you're walking through that subway station and hear a talented performer, 
consider giving them a buck or two. I think that's a great idea. We're out. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dana George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.